Well, good morning. I'm privileged to uh, share God's Word with you today as we uh, delve into um, Prequel. This is the first in a series that's going to lead us right up to the birth of Christ. And as you think about Prequel, you think about the story behind the story. We know the story. We know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. We may even know some of the facts about no room in the inn and, you know, Mary and Joseph negotiating how did she become pregnant and and the appearance of uh, Gabriel to Mary and, and how Mary went down to be with Elizabeth and Zechariah. We know some of those stories, but there are stories even before those stories that help us to understand and enrich the nature of our Christmas experience. They're called Old Testament stories. So we're going to be looking at some of those stories to understand the nature of God's foretelling and uh, understand the purpose for the coming of our Savior Jesus, his very birth in Bethlehem. By nature, we're a curious people. We truly are. In fact, if you uh, uh, pay any attention at all, most of the things that you watch are to enrich you with the story behind the story, whether it's Dateline or, or whether it's 2020 or, or my wife's a big fan of Wheel of Fortune. She can't wait to figure out what those blanks are going to be, and she spends time guessing them and encouraging me to pay attention, and I typically mock the program, and uh, she gives me a, a look or tells me to be quiet. So it's just the nature of things. You know, we want to know the story. In fact, books I read, I want to know the story behind the story. I know the event. I want to know how it led to that event. In fact, uh, all the recent uh, news surrounding what's been going on at St. Louis that's made us, unfortunately, the heart of the nation and, and the heart of, of uh, really the world's news about Ferguson is we waited weeks and weeks and weeks to know the story behind the story. We knew that there was a shooting that took place, and we knew a little bit about Michael Brown. We knew a little bit about Darren Wilson, and we just wanted to know what did the grand jury find out? You know, what was the story behind the story? And now people are still wanting to know even more it's just our nature to want to know more. And that's what prequel is about, the stories that help us and enrich the understanding of the birth of Jesus, that story that we think we know all so well. Uh, when you think about prequel, though, and you think about uh, investigating backstories, it doesn't have to always be so dramatic. I'm not just talking about film or books. Uh, we're curious about all kinds of things. For instance, Pastor Garrett, uh, we all know Pastor Dion, he preaches here often. Uh, he recently made a trip up to the Indiana-Michigan line. Most of his family lives in Michigan. His grandparents live in northern Indiana, and so that's kind of a, a common meeting place. And so he drove up there to celebrate Thanksgiving. And then he posted this picture uh, on Facebook while he was still up there. And he said, nothing says Thanksgiving at Nana's like Alasia nymphs. Now, I'm a Hoosier. I was born in Indiana, and uh, we're not the most sophisticated people in the world. I have never heard of Elacia Nymphs. And uh, Carol, likewise, is a southern girl. Uh, she hails from South Texas, where the drink of the day is Lone Star, Pearl, Tequila. So we had to Google this thing and find out what is this because he posted this picture of a punch bowl. It's a beautiful bowl, but what is Alasia Nips? And uh, here's what it says. It turns out it's a drink made with champagne and cognac, or Grand Mariner, uh, poured over ice and thinly sliced oranges. We can't wait to go to the Garrett's soon and taste that for ourselves. And 
You know, we wanted to know the story behind the story. What is that? Don't you find yourself doing that? You know, I love smartphones. They help us to uh, find stories behind the stories. And, and then last week was Carol's birthday, and, and uh, kind of as a planned birthday uh, uh, celebration, we decided we're going to get out of town, you know, away from the phones, away from the routine, away from the demands of our jobs. And so we went down to Branson for a couple of days. It makes us feel young to go to Branson, actually, you know, to be down there among the folks. And, and uh, while we're down there, we got to see some programs. Yeah, I love to see the shows. We were only there just a couple of days, but we saw two evening shows and one matinee. And one of them was The Six. See these guys? The number one show in Branson. You know, it's worth going to see. And they're a completely a cappella group. Uh, They've been on the sing-off on uh, TV, and, and they've made some national appearances. Uh, they make all of the music with their voices, as well as the uh, lyrics of the song. And it's just fascinating to watch. But there are other groups that do that. What makes these guys so special is that they are a family of six brothers. And uh, throughout the course of the program, you got to know more about their family. In fact, they were born to a young couple, musically inclined, who were told they could never have children. And they went out to prove those doctors wrong. In fact, they don't only have six brothers. We came to find out they have ten boys born to this one mom and dad. Ten boys. One of the guys in the program said, obviously, they really, really wanted a girl. You know, <laughs> never happened for them. And then at the end of the program, uh, they, uh, they brought their dad out. Their, their mom died a few years ago from cancer, unfortunately. They wrote a beautiful song about her, too. Again, you know, just enriching us with an understanding of their life and, and what feeds into their passions. Uh, their dad came out, sat at the grand piano like he did when they were little kids and uh, led the last song. And then they brought their kids up, their dad's grandkids, 13 of them. There were more than that, but 13 were able to be at the show that night. And they came up and sang Christmas carols. It was just, it enriched us, you know, to know the story behind the story. And, and then uh, my choice, you know, when we go to Branson is to see the legends. You know, it's kind of a... Uh, a cool thing. I've been to the Legends in Vegas, and I've been to the Legends a couple of times, maybe three times now in, in Branson. And uh, these are uh, imitators of famous uh, singers who are not just well-known, but are legends in their own time. In fact, at this Legends show, they had an Elvis there who was better than the original Elvis. He was. <laughs> he was fit, and uh, he could absolutely sing, uh, engage the, the, the people, and brought the band up, sat in a circle, sang requests, just Incredible, I could listen to him all night. But as we walked in, too, they take your picture with some uh, of the uh, legends. And, and uh, I stood next to, put my arm around, uh, uh, I get the name, uh, Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole. And, and uh, I said to him, I said, you look good for a dead guy. And then I, and I, I said, uh, not only that, I said, do you know that you were my mom's favorite singer? You know, she used to love Nat King Cole's music. And, and I think that's curious because that was the 40s and the 50s. And I, th I think, how did a black man, you know, what's the story behind that in racist America in the 40s and 50s, you know, where they couldn't even eat in certain restaurants, how did he become so well-known and so loved by Midwestern white people? You know, that's a story I still want to uncover, so I'm going to be doing more reading about that story. That's what this is about, understanding the backstory that makes the actual story that we know so rich and endearing to us. In fact, I love this quote. I came across it a while back uh, by William Arthur Ward. The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher illustrates or demonstrates, but the great teacher inspires. You know, it's not our purpose in the series prequel to just make you Bible smart. You know, not to just help you understand Old Testament stories. No, we want to understand 
who these people were, how does this story relate to the birth of Jesus, but even more importantly than that, how does the story that relates to Jesus relate to us? How does it inspire us? What lessons can we take away from it? You know, I've often said that most uh, preaching that I hear is true. It's just not very helpful. You know, we want to move past just being true and being helpful as well. In fact, there's a scripture that says in the New Testament, these things happen to them, speaking about the Old Testament people, these things happen to them and they have been recorded as examples written down for our benefit on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing, be careful that you do not fall. So let's take a look at Melchizedek and let's ask the question, who was this guy? What relationship does he have to Jesus? And what does all this have to do with us? The scripture calls him in Hebrews a peculiar priest, a peculiar priest, an unusual priest, an odd priest, an exceptional priest. By the way, Peter also calls you a peculiar people, an exceptional people, a different people. And uh, Melchizedek was that for the Old Testament. Jesus was certainly that for us. And we are, by God's desire, intended to be that also for our families and for our communities as well. Before I get to the, the few four verses in all of Genesis that refer to this guy, let me tell you the prequel or the story leading up to him. It involves Abraham. Now, Abraham is the father of many nations, you know. Uh, father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you, you know, the old children's song. You know, in fact, many religions trace their heritage back to Abraham. The Muslims do. Uh, the Jewish people do. Uh, Christians do. Father Abraham uh, is the father of many nations and many religions also trace their heritage back to him. Uh, this is a story that takes place during the life of Abraham. Now, we know that God came to Abraham when he was living in the land of Ur, which is over by uh, Iran, Iraq, in the Fertile Crescent, a very fertile area, the land of the Tigris and Euphrates, you know, good ground. And uh, he had grown old there, and, and he was doing quite well. He was wealthy. He was affluent. And the Lord came to him and said, leave this place, Abraham. <laughs> you can imagine, that'd be tough, man. I'm in retirement. You know, I worked hard. But Abraham didn't say that. He said, absolutely, where do you want me to go? He said, I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to designate for your children and for your children's children for all people. And uh, he brought him over to Israel. Now, Abraham was prospered on his way. So much so that he brought along his nephew, Lot, and their herdsmen and their flocks got so huge that they could not coexist. They were constantly arguing with each other. You know, his herdsmen, you know, who's going to get the grass? What order do we water? And there were just problems developing. So Abraham, in his wisdom, said, Lot, we need to separate our herds from each other and our herdsmen from each other with some distance. So you choose, Lot, where you want to live, and I will take what you do not choose. Lot was a young guy, impetuous guy, not given to humility. And he says, well, if I get the choice, I'm going to choose to go down to the Jordan River Valley. It's much like the land of the Euphrates and the Tigris where we came from. It's rich. There's lots of grass. There's easy access to water. And I'm going to raise my herds there and live my life there. And so Abraham lived in a, in a more arid place. Now what happened was that this land where Lot chose to live down by Sodom and Gomorrah was hotly contended. In fact, other kings came and raided that land, and they took Lot and his entire family, also the riches of that region, they took it into captivity with them and uh, intended to make the people their slaves. So Lot was carried off into uh, uh, slavery by these conquering kings. One of his men escaped and ran to Abraham. 
and told him what had happened. Now, Abraham was not a warrior. Abraham was a herdsman. But he armed his herdsmen, 300 and some of them, and uh, taught them the rudiments of war. And they went to chase these kings that had just defeated the entire region. Let me pick the story up there from Genesis chapter 14. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and all the other people. Now Abraham returned from defeating Kedor Laomer, and the kings allied with him. Now the king of Sodom, one of the conquered cities, came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now the king of Sodom comes out because he wants his people back. And he doesn't know what Abraham's intentions are. He says, please return my people. You can keep the spoil of the war, even the things they carried off from us, but return my people. And Abraham says, no, I'm going to return your people, and I'm also going to return all of your spoil, because I don't want you to ever claim that you were the one who made me rich. God has made me rich. And so he gave him back his people and his goods. Then it says, and here, here it comes, the, the couple of short verses, the only time this man is mentioned. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a priest of the God Most High. Melchizedek's name actually means king of righteousness. He was also king of Salem, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Comes out, he was a priest of the Lord Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of all the spoil. As they say thus far the reading, you know, he disappears then from the narrative of history. Well, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? That's who he is historically. He's not mentioned again in the narrative of Genesis, but he is referred to in other scriptures. In fact, 11 other places throughout the Old Testament, especially Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, much is made of Melchizedek. Some would suggest that he was a theophany, that he was an appearance of God in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus did make appearances in the Old Testament. You know, for instance, at, at Samuel, or at the, uh, at the birth of Samson, uh, he appeared uh, to Samson's parents and told them that they would give birth to this judge who would lead Israel out of freedom. We know this because they presented an offering and he received it. We know that he appeared to Abraham one time too because there was an angel and two other angels with him and, and, uh, and it distinguishes him as, uh, as an appearance of Christ pre the birth in Bethlehem. Maybe Melchizedek was a pre-appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. We know that in Hebrews, he's referred to as a peculiar priest, an unusual priest. And get this, he received the praise of the man from whom the entire nation of Israel, the entire Jewish nation, the entire Christian nation, the entire Muslim nation, accords as the greatest man of the Old Testament. That man humbled himself before this peculiar priest, this priest chosen by God. Now, he was different than all the other priests. All the other priests would find their priestly lineage derived from Aaron and the Levite tribe. He was not of Levi. You know, we don't know 
his heritage. We don't know his lineage. And also the priests of the Old Testament were only allowed to be priests from age 30 until age 50 for 20 years. It says he would be a priest of God forever, likened to the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus. Uh, in Psalm 110, it's interesting that that psalm is a direct reference uh, to the pre-incarnate Christ or to the coming of Christ. Jesus actually quotes this psalm several times in reaction to the Pharisees who said, How can you claim to be God? How can you claim to be God's son? Jesus would quote this passage from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool. Jesus would say, How did David, who was Lord, say to his son, You are my Lord. Sit down while I serve you. And it says they could not answer him a word. And in the same psalm, he says, For you shall be a priest forever, like unto the order of Melchizedek. And so again, Jesus acknowledged that he was a priest like unto Melchizedek, chosen by God, not chosen by man, not chosen by any uh, system by which a priest would be chosen. He was greater than Aaron, greater than Abraham, uh, greater than all the other priests, and uh, appointed by God to serve this purpose. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus was uh, a peculiar priest, uh, greater than all the other prophets, greater than all the other kings, greater than all the other priests. In fact, Jesus, uh, once in another argument with the religious leaders of his day, said, it's interesting to me that you search the entire Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you think you will find the key to uh, righteousness. You think that you will find eternal life. You know, some system, some means by which you can be sure that you are okay with God in life and in death. And then he added this phrase, but don't you know all of these testify about me. This is really a testimony about who Jesus would be and what Jesus would accomplish. In the Old Testament, uh, throughout that era, there were only three different kinds of people that were ever anointed, and they were anointed with special oil. Prophet, priest, and king. There was a, an elaborate procedure by which they were chosen and then anointed to be either a prophet, a priest, or a king. Uh, they were anointed with special oil set aside, but Jesus said, but I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit for God's bidding. That's what Melchizedek has to do with Jesus. What does he have to do with you? You know, a teacher uh, tells you the facts, a good teacher explains the facts, a superior teacher ex uh, illustrates the facts, but a uh, a truly great teacher inspires with the facts. Where's our inspiration? Well, let's just take a look at what a priest is meant to do, what Jesus did in his high priestly role for us. First of all, a priest receives our offerings. It's interesting to me that Abraham, who was God's own servant, chosen by God to lead, humbled himself and presented a tithe of all the spoil to a priest who represented the most high God. You know, he was mature in his faith, and he understood this was a principle that was true about those who were truly God's people. They would present offerings to God. It befuddles me sometimes that nearly half of our congregation has no recorded offerings. You, you may drop cash in the plate from time to time, but it's not a high priority. And I don't say that to your detriment. I just say that to my confusion and, and probably a, an indictment of my teaching to help you understand 
all that God intends to bless in all the ways he intends to prosper us by doing this. This is what godly people do. This is what godly people have always done. Abraham, before it became a law under Moses, presented a tithe. Jacob, when he saw that ladder reaching into heaven, pledged to God a tithe of all that he would receive before it became a law under Moses. God's people have always lived this way, always done this. Uh, Paul said in many places the importance of the offering is not to honor God, but to avail yourself of the blessing that God can provide. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he goes on for verses and verses about it. Let me just pick out just uh, a few verses from 2 Corinthians 9. Now let me say, those of you who sow sparingly shall harvest sparingly. Uh, He compares it to casting seed on fertile ground. If you only put a little bit of seed out, you're only going to receive a little bit of harvest. But those who sow abundantly shall harvest abundantly. But still, you should do what you've decided in your heart. For God loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion, not grudgingly. You know, it has to be a matter of faith, a matter of the heart. He said, don't you know that God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for all the good that God intends for you to do. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you in everything. Everything. What does that include? Like everything? You know, the joy of your life, the relationships that you have. You know, we just came out of a series talking about the genius of gratitude and how that changes our life. So also, God says, when we make offerings willingly and gladly, we avail ourselves to God's future blessings. You know, I always think about a tool in my toolbox that I, that I really enjoy using. And, you know, it's always on the top tray so I can easily find it. Uh, and, and it gets well used because it's helpful to me. Uh, so also, those who are helpful to the Lord will be prospered by the Lord. He goes on to say, the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will certainly supply and multiply your seed for future sowing and to increase your harvest of righteousness so that you can be used by accomplish great things in your world, in your family, and in your own life. You will be enriched in everything for your generosity, which through us is producing gratitude towards God. You know, first of all, a priest receives our offering. You know, and as much as we are also peculiar people, we will present offerings to the Lord, uh, certainly to further his purpose, but also to receive his blessing. Secondly, a priest advocates for sinners before God. You know, I, I doubt that any of us would claim that we have a right to expect God's favor, his blessing. But we have an advocate before God, you know, who argues our case for us. And, and I love this part of the nature of Jesus was that he was true man. He lived on this earth. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was like to be lonely, to be hungry. He knew what it was like to, um, you know, be misunderstood. He knew what it was like to suffer. And he knows the human condition. And now the scripture says in Hebrews 4, we have a high priest in heaven who can advocate for us before his father's throne, bring our concerns before the father, one who understands what it's like to be human, one who understands that these are serious things that we deal with. He is an advocate for us. That's what priests do. A priest hears our confession. 
you know, in this campaign, I love my church, which, which I truly do. You, you received a, a letter from me, and I was allowed only this yellow slip of paper to, to write 10 things that I love about this church. One of them is that this church is a place of acceptance. This church is a place of acceptance. And in fact, Pooh was up here, and she talked about Frozen last week and how awesome it was that 900 people were here. Uh, she didn't tell you the one story that, that I heard from, and it was actually a member of our church who, who told it to me, who brought a neighbor here. Uh, the neighbor is living with a guy. Uh, they're cohabiting, and, and she's got a child. He's got two children. None of them have been baptized. Uh, she had a Roman Catholic background, and they went to the church and asked if, if they could have their kids baptized. She just felt that it was something they had omitted to do, and they had ignored their religious life and their religious training, and she asked if, if that could be done. And uh, I, don't, I don't say this in judgment of the, of the Catholic Church because it could happen in other churches as well. But when he found out they were living together, he said, no, I won't, I won't baptize your kids. You know, you guys need to get your life in order. And, and uh, she asked her neighbor after having been here, she said, your church is a little different. Do you think your pastors would baptize our kids? She says, I know they would baptize your kids. We're arranging right now to baptize those kids. You know, you don't have to be perfect before you come here. You know, your lives are not perfect. My life is not perfect, and you are accepted here. The Lord loves you here. There was a, a fellow a while back in the church who was upset that we don't preach enough hell and damnation. We don't preach enough, uh, you know, condemning people for their sin in this place. And, uh, you know, preach repentance more often, he said. I said, well, let me start with you. Why don't you repent for your arrogance and your self-righteous nature? We'll start with you, and then we'll work our way out from there, you know. And I, I just think, you know, and he meant well. I don't, I don't you know, I, I just felt sorry for him that he felt that that's how we're saved, you know, by getting our act together and presenting a, you know, a life that's, you know, tight and wholesome to God. You're not saved that way. Good luck doing that, you know. You're going to fail at that. Now, we care about sin, we declare truth, and we declare things to be not true and things not to be the best way to live because when you're living in sin, your life is less than God intends for it to be. Who wants to live that life? I don't want that life for you. And so if I talk to this couple, and we do often talk to couples who are living together, we say, so why get married, you know? What's changed for you? The world accepts you as you are, you know, why get married? Now, I believe there's reasons for that, and we'll talk about that. But not because it makes you better before God. You are made perfect before God because of the forgiveness you have in Christ Jesus. We avoid sin just like I want a child to avoid bad behavior because it leads to trouble for my child. That's why God cares about sin and its effect in your life. Amen? So this is a place of acceptance, and I love that about this place. It's like, it's like the woman who was thrown down at the feet of Jesus, and they said, We found this woman in the very practice of adultery. Condemn her. Jesus began to write on the sand. I don't know what he wrote, but I suspect he wrote the sins of those who were trying to condemn her because they all just kind of got embarrassed and walked away. And he said, none is left to condemn you, and neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, your sinful life is not going to benefit you in the long run. It's going to collapse on you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt you. He cared about that, but he didn't care about condemning her. Nothing would be achieved through that. This is a place of acceptance, and it's also a place of absolution. A priest absolves. So, you know, after you've confessed your sin and after you acknowledge that this isn't the way God wants me to live, then you should know, just as we do almost every service in the, uh, here, we announce that you are forgiven by Christ. Or we sing a song about, you know, being made perfect in the blood of Christ Jesus because that's how it happens. We don't prescribe 
penance for you to do. We don't say, well, this is the nature of your sin. Here's the nature of the good you must do to balance the scale. It's not about balancing the scale. Jesus said, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The only way that you will receive perfection, the only way that I receive perfection is by absolution, complete forgiveness. For this Jesus died, for this he rose again, so that we might receive his perfection and he might take upon himself our sin. Amen? That is the gospel. That is the point. That's why he is a peculiar or a special priest. We present offerings to him for his good and for our benefit. He advocates, you know, takes our concerns before the Father, and we know that he explains them in ways that will benefit us. He hears our confession. He absolves us of our sin. We're approaching Christmas. And as you think about Christmas, I think how precious it is to be home at Christmas, right? We just sang a song earlier in the service, How Great Thou Art. When I shall come with shouts of acclamation and take you home, what joy shall fill my life when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take us home. You know, we want to be home for Christmas. You know, we're away from home as long as we live in this world. Bing Crosby sang a song in 1943. Uh, In fact, it became uh, the favorite of all the GIs during World War II. Millions of them were overseas in the Pacific and in Europe. And uh, it became their favorite, became the favorite of the families at home. And this is how the lyrics go. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents under the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas. If only in my dreams, you know. I'll be home with the Lord. You know, I'll be at peace with God. You know, uh, virtually now, but someday in reality. Because of what this priest, this priest that has been sent by God, the Son of God, to intercede for me. I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, Now with him, virtually, and then in reality, because of what he has accomplished for me and for you. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we ask your favor and your blessing upon our lives. They are imperfect lives. And and yet you have come that you might be an intercessor, that, that you might be our confessor, that you might be our absolver that you might be the means by which we have uh, the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Righteousness as our friend, as our Savior, as our assurance in the face of our imperfection. Lord, help us humbly to receive uh, your forgiveness, your grace, and to be a, a mirror and a proclaimer of that grace and that peace and that love in our world, in our relationships. Grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.